Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so it is time to talk about science. And I just always like to remind you at the beginning that you can find me throughout the week uh, on my Facebook page for the uh, show, so that's Evidence-Based Radio. Or you can email me with questions or comments at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. You can also listen to this and previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So tonight we are going to talk about some uh, Halloween-appropriate stories. Though we will be a bit loose (laughs) with the definition of what is uh, Halloween-appropriate. Um, so let's start tonight with a new study on vitamins that is kind of scary. (laughs) Uh, it actually suggests that taking vitamins, that supplements of vitamin B6 and B12 might be doing otherwise healthy people more harm than good, especially men. Now I'll first remind you that unless you actually have a diagnosed vitamin deficiency, taking a vitamin supplement will generally not do you any good. Uh, In fact, it can uh, actually be, as this present study uh, indicates, contraindicated. Now, despite this fact, I know that at least a few of you listening probably still take some sort of vitamin supplement. 50% of Americans take some sort of quote-unquote dietary supplement, and B vitamins are the most common. However, it may be time for us to be more serious about the possible detrimental health effects of some of this supplementation. This particular study used a very large cohort, 77,000 people across the state of Washington who have been specifically enrolled in the Vitamins and Lifestyle, or VITAL, study, designed specifically to look at supplement use relative to cancer risk. So researchers Theodore Brasky and Emily White at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle were intrigued by a 2009 Norwegian study that suggested a link between supplementation and increased lung cancer risk. The initial findings were suggestive but not conclusive. And so the researchers enlisted a colleague, Chai Ling Chen, at National Taiwan University, and the three of them decided to break down the population by V-vitamin B vitamin use and compare the rates of cancer in these groups. Weirdly, the study suggested that for women, there was little effect, but for men, the effect was rather striking. Men who took 20 milligrams of B6 for years had twice the risk of developing lung cancer. If they smoked, it was even worse, with the risk of becoming threefold. For smokers taking B12, the results were even more devastating. Those who took more than 55 micrograms daily had quadruple the lung cancer risk. Now, the researchers point out that these amount these amounts of vitamin are around 20 percent. I'm sorry, 20 times the recommended dietary allowance. However, they also note that these are the sort of doses that are actually commercially available in stores. When asked whether he believed this should lead to better scrutiny of vitamin supplements, and perhaps a reassessment of the 1994 Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, which essentially deregulated the manufacture of health supplements, supplements such as vitamins, Brasky told The Atlantic that, quote, The law was created by industry lobbying to keep the FDA away from regulation, so the industry self-regulates. Expressing dismay at the prospect of his study being used to talk about said regulation, he continued, I don't want to pick a fight with the vitamin industry for any reason. And I bring this up particularly because it's a great example of the difference between science and medicine and corporations and capitalism. Now, I've talked about this extensively before, but capitalism is the real reason why so much of interactions with medicine and the medical profession are less than they should be in this country. It's lobbying that allows big supplement to convince the government to actually let them regulate their own industry free from the constraints on other pharmaceuticals. 
And so even though vitamins and other supplements can be just as dangerous as other drugs, they are not regulated. And this, of course, can also lead to supplements sitting on store shelves that could have any number of ingredients not listed on the packaging, and they may or may not even contain the advertised components. And of course, the companies that sell these products can virtually suggest that they do anything and everything, as long as they slap on what has been termed the quack Miranda warning, uh, which is, of course, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And so as long as they do that, they are free and in the clear. And, you know, there are actually starting to be real questions about some of these supposedly harmless vitamins, where if you take them in large enough doses, they can do actual harm especially to certain populations that are vulnerable. And so, yeah, on a similar note, I want to talk about another story where capitalism is the main issue rather than science. And in keeping with the scary theme of tonight, I am going to shock some of you, perhaps, uh, by talking about potentially dirty dealings from everyone's favorite hated corporation, Monsanto. That's right, I am going to talk about the possibility of Monsanto actually being the villain in a story. We all know about the infamous weed killer glyphosate, but a different weed killer, dicamba, is the topic of this scary tale. Now, dicamba is actually an older weed killer that Monsanto has brought back in order to help farmers deal with glyphosate-resistant weeds. So, of course, the problem is, is that um, glyphosate is really great as long as you properly uh, apply it and use uh, fields, plant, if you plant, um, you have to plant parts of your field that don't have glyphosate uh, resistance so that you can have pockets where um, things can grow. But if you don't do that, which a lot of farmers don't because it takes up time and energy, um, you get resistance. And you'll get resistance eventually, but unfortunately, because of the way that a lot of farmers have used glyphosate uh, resistant crops, the weeds have gotten resistant to it faster. And so, of course, now we need to come up with some other way to deal with them. And so Monsanto and other companies have looked at dicamba. The only problem is that this weed killer does not easily stay where it is sprayed. Now, Monsanto, along with two other companies, BASF and DuPont, have announced a new formulation of dicamba, which doesn't suffer the same flaws as the original, which is volatility. Now, traditionally, dicamba tends to evaporate from the soil or vegetation it's applied to and then to drift in the wind, potentially devastating nearby non-resistant crops. But the companies promised that the new formulation does not suffer from such volatility. Of course, because these are proprietary formulas, public agricultural school scientists were not able to test these new products before they went to market. And now they are crying foul. I wish we could have done more testing. We've been asked to do... We've been asked to do more testing for several years, but the product was not made available to us, says Bob Scott, a weed scientist at the University of Arkansas. These are proprietary products. Until they release those formulations for testing, we're not allowed to test them. Even worse, Monsanto started selling dicamba-tolerant soybeans in 2016 before the supposedly new non-volatile version of the weed killer was even commercially available, which unfortunately posed an irresistible temptation for some farmers to use the older version of the weed killer. In Arkansas, for instance, there, was wide, there were widespread reports of dicamba damage to fields that did not have resistant crops. 
One dispute even led to a fatal shooting. This past summer, 26 million acres were planted with dicamba-tolerant crops. The demand for it is overwhelming. The need to control these difficult-to-manage weeds is huge, says Scott Partridge, Monsanto's vice president of global strategy. However, it soon became apparent to ag scientists that the damage was widespread. The worst was in Arkansas, Missouri, and Tennessee. By the end of May, 1st of June, it became impossible. The calls were coming in three or four a day, sometimes eight or 12 a day, says the University of Arkansas's Scott. There, was, there is no precedent for what we're seeing this year. According to Kevin Bradley, a professor of weed science at the University of Missouri, who tracked instances of damage over the summer, at least 3.1 million acres of crop showed some form of damage from drifting dicamba. Now, Monsanto's position is that the farmers were simply applying the chemical incorrectly, using the wrong kinds of nozzles and things like that. And that, of course, better education and a better understanding of how to properly apply these would solve the issue. However, Bradley Scott, sorry, Bradley Scott and other ag scientists are convinced that the damage patterns are not consistent with that of application error. They point to another cause, that the new dicamba is still volatile. Scott ran an experiment to test his theory. He sprayed trays of soil with dicamba-containing herbicides at a location far removed from a field of soybeans. He then brought the tray into the field. His team left the tray in the field for 48 hours with, with small miniature greenhouses open, to the, open in the ends placed over them. As the dicamba evaporated, it diffused out of the trays and damaged surrounding soybean plants. Evidence that this new formulation is, indeed, volatile. But of course, Monsanto, DuPont, and other chemical manufacturers have a lot of money riding on this new solution. And of course, the EPA and other government uh, agencies are now controlled by deregulation supporters who are almost certain to back the corporations over the science. So it will be interesting to see how this develops uh, as we move into the next growing season. Now again, this is a story not about bad science, but about capitalism and corporate greed. Those are truly scary and harm more people in this country than anything else. And speaking of DuPont, did you know that this past weekend in Parkersburg, West Virginia, there was a fire at a warehouse full of toxic, potentially toxic, I should say, uh, waste products that caused the governor to have to declare a state of emergency? The former Ames Shovel Factory, owned by a company called IEI, but which may in fact be nothing more than a shell company uh, contracted to DuPont, was filled with recycled plastics and other often unmarked containers and barrels. In order to fight the fire, 31 fire departments were called in, and on Saturday, quote, we used 6 million gallons of the city's water and 3 million gallons out of the river, noted Lubeck Volunteer Fire Chief Mark Stewart. The plant was still smoldering as of yesterday. Now it turns out that as far back as 2008, firefighters had warned of a potential disaster waiting to happen at the plant. While state officials insist that air quality is not currently dangerous, on Thursday, the Mid-Ohio Valley Health Department warned people to, quote, avoid contact with the smoke and remain indoors if possible with windows and doors closed until the smell is no longer detectable. And in fact, it turns out that the schools have been closed all week and basically people have been told to remain indoors. 
And so as of today, the uh, United States EPA has finally stepped in. Uh, They got a request from the county and they have deployed the Airborne Spectral Photometric Environmental Collecting Technology Aircraft, or ASPECT. And so the ASPECT aircraft is able to do real-time chemical and radiological detection, infrared and photographic imagery, and other monitoring. And so among other things, the ASPECT plane will help to find hotspots still remaining in the fire to better help firefighters extinguish the still smoldering and burning remains of this warehouse. Now, it does seem for now that toxic gases have not been detected in any of the um, readings that have been done. But this is a bullet dodged by chance, not by purpose. Corporate dumping of toxic waste and materials like used plastics are a huge problem especially when they are not stored properly. While many of these products are essential to modern civilization, because of the structure of our regulation, or lack thereof more realistically, there is a real potential for fires like these to be actually damaging to the surrounding community. Science and technology are important, but should not be considered outside of the health, safety, and security of the very people it is supposed to help. That is a real-life horror story. Corporations that are allowed to skirt the laws and regulations in order to save money and increase profits at the expense of, usually, low-income communities with low social capital in order to fight such abuse. And in fact, this particular community has had other issues in the past with this kind of corporate malfeasance and with toxic materials being in this community. And especially right now, they are really worried about their water supply because, well, most of it went into fighting the fire. And of course, now all of that water is going to drain back into the community and into the river And even if there's nothing in the air, that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be an impact on the water supply. And of course, this community, again, is a poor community in West Virginia that is not in a position to be able to defend itself from these corporations that just come into these communities and do whatever they want. I mean, you know, West Virginia is coal country and coal has not done any good for anyone in that state except for, of course, the mine owners. They are pretty much the only ones who ever win in this. Um, And this is a uh, similar story where, of course, the people who own these warehouses are never affected by the things that happen to them. And they are often left to basically just rack up tons and tons of violations without actually ever having any real consequences, especially if they can pay some of the fines. The amount of money that they're making versus the fines is usually so disproportionate that they don't even care. They just pay the fines and never actually fix the problems. And so this is a real issue that we have in this country. And so I think that that is really something that is scary. And I'm unfortunately not sure that it's going to get any better anytime soon given our new uh, regime in this country and the fact that, especially at the EPA, for instance, uh, we are looking at more and more deregulation rather than actually holding people accountable for what they are doing. Um, So unfortunately, this is a scary episode where I don't have a good solution as to what's going to happen, and I fear it might get even worse. Okay. All right. Let's move on. (laughs) 
This is actually a story that um, I wanted to talk about because there has been a lot of sort of hyperbolic stories talking about this particular paper. And while I don't discount the fact that it does show something that is worrisome, I wanted to talk about how it's not, it can't be extrapolated to the point that a lot of places have made it out to be. And so this is a story um, of a study by Casper Hallman of the Radbound University's Institute for Water and Wetland Research in the Netherlands. So he and his colleagues uh, have this paper out, which suggests that there was an 82% decline in midsummer flying insect biomass across multiple sites in Germany since 1989. Now, on the face of that, it sounds pretty terrible. And people have been basically saying that it's insect mageddon or, you know, that we're, we've completely decimated insects and we're all doomed, basically. Um, and so, yeah, on the face of it, again, it sounds pretty terrible. But you actually have to dive into the paper and into the methods section specifically and see what the authors can and cannot actually assert based on their findings. Now, I, I will admit that Hallman himself is pretty, uh, he has been pretty strident about what this shows. Um, but I wanted to uh, talk about a counterpoint to that, because I think that while it is something that we should worry about, I'm not sure it's exactly what he thinks we should be worrying about. And so Manu Sanders, an Australian ecologist and postdoctoral research fellow at the University of, uh, sorry, at the School of Environmental and Rural Science at the University of New England, examined the original paper. And she actually suggests that the true thing that this paper shows is, for the most part, that we need more papers like this. She knows, she notes, for instance, that the media missed two key points. One, we need more long-term monitoring like this from other locations. And two, to understand these impacts, we need more information on the hundreds of thousands of unknown invertebrates in the world that we know absolutely nothing about where they live, how they benefit humans, and what they need to persist. And so that's a pretty big miss. Um, and she actually also goes into a bit on the specific uh, limitations of the paper. And uh, one of the big things to, that she points to is the important consideration that biomass is not the same as abundance. So biomass is simply the total in weight of all the insects collected at a trap site. It doesn't tell you anything about the total number of insects found or the diversity or lack thereof of species found in that location. And so therefore, it doesn't tell you the whole story. Also... If you think about it, the inclusion or exclusion of a of one large bug can actually dramatically affect the measurement. You're talking about bugs that are often, you know, fractions of a gram. And if you have a big beetle that was in the original one and is not in the second one, that can actually be quite a dramatic difference. Now, she doesn't fault the paper uh, for this as any sort of lack of rigor, um, they sampled 1,503 traps um, among along those years. And the amount of funding that would have been required to hire trained professionals to actually go through each sample and identify and count the insects would have been enormous um, and is definitely not available at this point. And so what she also noted, though, is that, in fact, 59% of the traps were only surveyed for a single year within the 27-year period of the study. Only 26 sites were surveyed for multiple years, and of those multiple years, they generally weren't consecutive years. Now, there is still something to be said here. When you look at just those 26 sites, you do see a marked decrease in biomass. 
In addition, anecdotal evidence suggests that there has been a marked decrease in insects. But the important thing here is that more study is needed in order to find the exact causes of what is happening. Clearly, pesticides and the loss of wild lands have impacted populations of insects. But what's really important is to have resources devoted to more studies like this. Because, of course, we can't do something about it if we don't know exactly what's happening. And there's been a lot of people who point to certain pesticides and things like that. And, you know, there is definitely something to be said that if you have certain pesticides that kill um, animals that are or insects that are not the target insects, that's a problem. And so it's something that we should definitely be addressing. But it's also not necessarily the full story. And so it could be environmental pollutants, it could be uh, water issues, it could be any number of things, but we just haven't devoted enough time and uh, funding to figuring it out. And that is the problem. Okay, so let us take a break and then we will come back for some more uh, Halloween-ish stories. Uh, the next couple of stories are about blood. Uh, so do stay tuned. Hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musik Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. Listen up, employers. Veterans can be a great asset to your company or organization. Veterans have gained skills in leadership, teamwork, and performance under pressure. Veterans have received the very best training in their fields and are never afraid to tackle a tough situation to accomplish the mission. 
If you are looking to hire a veteran, the Department of Labor can help you make it happen. You hire a veteran today, you won't be sorry. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In the wake of a disaster, what one thing can you send that will help people the most? A blanket, a tent, a sandbag, a doctor. Actually, if you send a monetary donation, you send all these things. Even a small donation can make a big impact and can quickly become exactly what people affected by disaster need most. In the wake of a hurricane, your monetary donation can make a huge difference to those in need. To donate, visit supporthurricanerelief.org. That's supporthurricanerelief.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. And we are back. And as promised, we are going to be talking about blood. Now, this first story actually concerns blood transfusions. A preliminary study published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that men who received blood transfusion transfusions from women who had previously been pregnant were 13% more likely to die during the study than those who received blood transfusions from male donors. In addition, blood transfusions from women who had never been pregnant also showed no rise in the risk of death. Women who received blood from any of the three types of donors had no effects on their health outcomes. The findings, quote, are provocative and may, if true, have significant clinical implications, notes Dr. Richard Cable of the American Red Cross Blood Service and Dr. Gustav Edgren of the Department of Hematology at Karolinska University Hospital in Stockholm in an editorial accompanying the study. They note that the results are preliminary, obviously, and so therefore more study needs to be done in order to see if there needs to be changes to the blood donation process and the allocation of blood during blood transfusions. Now, previous studies had actually suggested a link between men receiving blood transfusions from women and death, but had not distinguished between women who had or had not previously been pregnant. This new study looked at more than 31,000 individuals who received blood transfusions in the Netherlands between 2005 and 2015. The researchers from Leiden University Medical Center looked only at those recipients who had received blood from a single type of donor. On average, they were followed for a year after having received the transfusion. In the end, nearly 4,000 participants died. For male patients, the ratio was 101 deaths per 1,000 uh, men who received blood from women who had experienced pregnancy, compared with 80 per 1,000 for those who had received blood from another male. This is a fairly significant discrepancy. The rate was 78 per, per thousand for men who received blood from women who had not been pregnant, which of course is much closer to those who received blood from men. So the author suggested there may be an immune system factor in the blood of women who have been pregnant that may affect the male system differently. But of course, they don't actually know what's going on yet. And again, there are limitations to the study. Because of the need to look at patients who received blood from only one type of donor, it may not be applicable to those who received blood from multiple donors, as is often the case for seriously ill patients. In addition, it turns out that the differential only showed in men who were younger than 50 years of age. This makes the findings very tentative, and they require validation in other studies, the researchers wrote. If it turns out that this is a genuine result, it would mean that the way blood transfusions are conducted would have to be more carefully managed. And in the U.S., where there is a constant shortage of blood, this is a problem. So whether or not this is true 
consider donating blood the next time you get a chance. Blood is always needed. Um, and especially as we come into winter, it becomes more needed as uh, people increasingly have things like car accidents where road conditions are bad. And so, yes, definitely, if you can uh, donate blood. Okay, let's now move on and talk about a weird molecule found in blood that has a unique property. For some animals, the molecule E2D is a potent attractor, and to other animals, it is a potent fear factor. The odor of blood is characterized by a rare universality, senior author Johan Lundström, a biologist at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, told AFP. Previous research suggested that isolated ED2 from pig's blood attracted wild dogs and tigers as much as actual whole blood. The new work duplicates this experiment with wolves, and they saw the same behavior. The wolves licked, bit, and otherwise were drawn to a piece of wood smeared with a synthetic version of the molecule in the same way they would have reacted to a fresh kill. Horseflies were similarly drawn to the molecule. And if you know anything about horseflies, they're the worst. <laughs> um, I'm actually allergic to them. And I was so happy when I moved out here and there are less of them uh, than there are in Eastern Mass. Um, anyways, total aside. <laughs> so the researchers then wanted to see if there would be an opposite reaction in animals that are commonly prey. We hypothesized that prey species would be under evolutionary pressure to become sensitive to ED E2D to help them avoid an area where a bloodbath is going on, said Lundstrom. When exposed to the molecule, mice recoiled in a way similar to that of actual blood. The researchers then wanted to see if humans would have a similar response. However, they had to devise a different research protocol for humans. We couldn't just expose people to the odor and ask, how do you feel, said Lundstrom. We had to find objective measures not based on subjective feelings. And so the team designed a three-part test for measuring human responses to the molecule. They first showed that subconsciously leaning forward while standing indicates attraction, while tilting backwards suggests danger. They found that when people were presented with a battery of three scents that were, for the most part, equivalent, ED... E2D caused people to rock back, even in tiny doses. Now, importantly, the subjects were unaware of the release of the molecule and had no idea that any of the scents would be related to blood, showing that the reaction was innate. The researchers also measured micro-sweating and gauged response time in a visual test where quicker, accurate answers indicated that the subject is fearful. Now, this isn't surprising given the early history of hominids. It's only very recently that we've become apex predators. Although humans are thought to be opportunistic predators, paleontological data indicates that early primates, our distant relatives, were small-bodied insect eaters, said the study. So, yes, it is definitely more likely that we would have a reaction like a prey animal than a predator. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears, and I just thought this was a really interesting story. I've heard about it before, and you may have too, but uh, it seemed theme-appropriate for the evening. Uh, I wanted to talk about one of the weirdest places on Earth. Uh, it is referred to as the Gates of Hell, or the Darvaza Gas Crater, and so it is this incredible uh, man-made landmark in the middle of the desert of Turkmenistan. So the most widely credited origin for this crater is that in 1971, uh, back when Turkmenistan was still part of the Soviet Union, geologists using a drill rig accidentally um, punctured a pocket of natural gas. And so the top layer of the soil then collapsed and left a gaping crater, which spewed forth toxic methane-infused gas. 
And of course, as you do, uh, they thought the best way to deal with the gas was to burn it off. And so the geologists set fire to the crater. Unfortunately, they didn't anticipate that the gas would continue to seep into the crater at what NASA has referred to as a quote-unquote significant rate. <laughs> it turns out that Turkmenistan has the sixth largest gas reserves in the world. And so, yes, <laughs> not a good idea. Now, of course, we can actually learn a lot from extreme environments like the Darvaza crater. And so in 2013, National Geographic explorer and storm chaser George Coronis actually donned a heat reflective suit like, like those worn uh, by volcanologists and a Kevlar climbing harness and repelled into the crater. He told National Geographic that, quote, when you first set eyes on the crater, it's like something out of a science fiction film. You've got this vast sprawling desert with almost nothing there. And then there's this gaping, burning pit. The heat coming off of it is scorching. The shimmer from the distortion of it warping the air around it is just amazing to watch. And when you're downwind, you get this blast of heat that is so intense that you can't even look straight into the wind. Interestingly, soil samples he collected at the bottom of the crater revealed extremophile bacteria that were, of course, extremely heat resistant. And so such extremophiles have continued to be found in extremely uh, harsh environments throughout the world and suggest that bacterial life could actually be out there in other harsh environments, for instance, on other planets or moons with similar extreme climates. So that is always very interesting. Okay, so let us now sort of wrap up our Halloween uh, with a uh, few stories that are a little more strictly just Halloween tales. Um, so I've talked about local cases of women being accused of witchcraft before, but I think that it's always fun to talk about them, um, especially since both of these uh, are pretty interesting cases, um, at least the two I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, and apparently being named Mary in the uh, late 17th century uh, in Western Massachusetts was not necessarily a good idea. So the first woman who was accused of being a witch that I'm going to talk about tonight was a woman named Mary Bliss Parsons of Northampton. And she was accused of being a witch in 1675. And so she was actually sent out to Boston and she was acquitted. And so Parsons' husband, Joseph, was a successful man who owned land in Springfield, Hadley, and Boston, as well as Northampton. However, in the early 1650s, a feud developed between the Parsons and a neighboring family, the Bridgmans. Now, the Bridgmans, it turns out, were not as fortunate as the Parsons, being both financially less successful and having less success in their family. And so they began to spread rumors that Mary was a witch. Now... The first thing that happened was that Joseph Parsons filed a slander lawsuit against them, which he won. The Bridgmans had to actually make a public apology and had to pay the fees and court costs. However, in 1674, Bridgman formally accused Mary of witchcraft after the sudden death of Sarah Bridgman's daughter, Mary Bartlett. And so Mary Parsons, Parsons was then sent to Boston for trial, where again, she was acquitted. But despite this, she continued to face rumors and left Northampton sometime later. Uh, she and her husband actually moved back to Springfield, and uh, she uh, actually ended up living in Springfield for many years. And uh, unfortunately, though, she was continually plagued with being called a witch. Um, her nephew, noted at one point that uh, he had been told that she was a witch. Her grandson uh, was eventually told by someone that your grandmother is a witch. And basically, it was just a bad time all around. Um, and so, yeah. Now, the other Mary, uh, who was similarly unlucky, uh, was actually known as Half 
Hanged Mary. Uh, that is a great uh, Halloween uh, moniker. And so Mary Webster was born in England around 1624. Her family moved to Springfield and she married in 1670 uh, William Webster. Now, according to Sylvester Judd's 1905 History of Hadley, Mary and William were poor and often relied on the community, which is often in these cases in the early uh, 17th century uh, or in the late 17th century. Uh, this is generally a kind of a uh, klaxon signal that you may be accused of being a witch because if you were a poor woman um, and apparently Mary was also not only poor but was easily offended and uh, not particularly gracious to her neighbors and in fact uh, Judd described her as despised and sometimes ill-treated she was soured with the world and rendered spiteful towards some of her neighbors they began to call her a witch and to abuse her and really they they abused her uh there was some really serious thing going things going on here it was said that she cast a spell on cattle and horses so that they couldn't pass her house and so the local drivers actually found her and beat her in order to break the spell in addition, she once walked into a house when a hen fell down a chimney into a pot of boiling water. And of course, she was uh, blamed for this. And, you know, they basically said that you were the reason this happened and it's an omen. And, you know, uh, she was obviously a witch, therefore. And most damningly, she had a scald mark probably from boiling water again, uh, that was, of course, considered to be a witch's mark. Because one of the easiest ways to uh, condemn a woman as a witch was to find some sort of mark on her, any kind of mark on her, and claim that that was the devil's mark and therefore that she was a witch. She was first examined in March of 1683 in Northampton for being a witch, um, but they decided that they couldn't handle uh, this th this particular trial, and so they uh, sent her to Boston uh, in April. And she actually remained in jail there until her uh, preliminary court date of May twenty second, sixteen eighty three. And at that time, she was indicted due to the fact that quote for that she not having the fear of God before her eyes and being instigated by the devil hath entered into covenant and had familiarity with him in the shape of a warrenage, which is a fisher or wild black cat of the woods and had his imps sucking her and teats or marks found on her. So very classic, uh, witch descriptions there. Now, uh, however, again, uh, when she was tried in full on June 1st, she was found not guilty and actually returned to Hadley and was probably pretty smug about it. <laughs> Let's be perfectly honest. Um, and so about a year and a half later, uh, Cotton Mather, uh, who, you know, uh, hometown anti-hero of sorts uh, in the valley, um, stirred up the controversy by siding with the inhabitants of Hadley and accusing Mary of the death of Philip Smith, a prominent citizen who had died a mysterious and painful death. Now, before his death, actually, the locals had already obviously decided that uh, Mary was guilty, and therefore, if they killed Mary, they could save him. And so according to Thomas Hutchinson's history of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, quote, while Philip Smith lay ill, a number of brisk lads tried an experiment upon the old woman. Having dragged her out of the house, they hung her up until she was near dead, let her down, rolled her sometime in the snow, and at last buried her in it and left her there. But it happened that she survived and the melancholy man died. <laughs> so, yeah, they apparently could not get a good crone down. <laughs> Mary ended up living in another 11 years, um, but probably not the most happy 11 years. Um, but I think 
uh, you know, after being accused of a witch and being a witch and being half hanged, one probably starts to feel the role a bit and uh, enjoy being uh, crabby and a pain to your neighbors. Um, and there is actually an interesting uh, tidbit about this particular story. Uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, the famous author, actually believes she is a descendant of Mary. And uh, actually, if you look at your copy of The Hands Handmaid's Tale, it is actually dedicated to uh, Mary. And so that is definitely an interesting little factoid there, uh, a little local connection um, to uh, Margaret Atwood. Okay, so before we wrap up tonight, I want to remind you that in case you haven't heard it lately, or in case you don't watch uh, several different uh, shows on which they have blessedly uh, talked about this, there has never been a documented case of a child being poisoned by candy handed out to them by a stranger while trick or treating. The only documented case of a child being poisoned is that of an eight-year-old boy named Timothy O'Brien, who was murdered back in 1974 in Houston, Texas. Of course, it turns out that he was killed by his own father, who had laced pixie sticks with cyanide, and he had actually given them to Timothy, his sister, and two other children in order to kind of divert suspicion, but luckily the three other children did not eat the tainted candy. Um, cause you know, it was pixie sticks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, he had apparently taken out a life insurance policy on his children and had apparently decided that it was time to collect, um, unfortunate, terrible, but not, um, any kind of stranger danger kind of issue. Now, there actually have been a few cases of sharp objects being added to candy, uh, such as needles or um, I think needles is usually, I don't think razor blades generally turn out to have been hoaxes, um, but none of them has ever caused anyone serious harm. And again, uh, most of them actually turn out to either be hoaxes or really questionable pranks by friends or family. So again, please do not worry about kids being poisoned by random strangers through their uh, candy. The only thing you should be worried about is them receiving chick tracks instead of candy. <laughs> um, but hopefully around here, you won't get much of that. That's, I think, a little more prevalent in other parts of the country where uh, good uh, Catholic, uh, sorry, Christians, because of course, uh, Jack Chick hated Catholics. Uh, good Christians are told to give Chick tracks instead of candy, um, which I always think is a great way to put a giant sign on your house that says, please, please egg my house. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, definitely have a fun and safe Halloween. Uh, go forth and be merry and uh, but not too merry, obviously. And um, I will be back again next week. So have a great week until then. And good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.